بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والحمد لله رب العالمين وسبحان الله العلي العظيم والله أكبر الله أكبر على كل من طغى وتجبر وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وأن محمدا رسول الله نؤمن به فهو هدينا خاتم النبيين المرسل رحمة للعالمين والصلاة عليه وعلى آله وأصحابه إلى يوم الدين الله لا إله إلا هو نستهديه ونستجيره ونستعين به نسألك الله أن تقسم لنا من خشيتك ما تحول به بيننا وبين معاصيك ونسألك أن تقسم لنا من رحمتك ما تقربنا به من طاعتك ومن اليقين ما يهون علينا مصائب الدنيا وأحداثها وصلي وسلم وبارك على محمد وآله وأصحابه يا رب العالمين Subhanallah, there, there are events that take place that it would simply be a form of malpractice not for Zuma Khutbah to talk about. One doesn't talk about these events because it is enjoyable to do so. But as we said before many times, the very purpose of a Juma is for the Muslim public to continue being aware of what are Islamically pressing ethical issues, what are matters of intimate concern for the entire Muslim Ummah. Jum'ah was never intended to be like Sunday services in so much of Christianity 
a form of escaping the world or escaping from the demands of the world into a, and especially this is after the modern age and the way that Christianity adapted to the modern age or the modern age forced Christianity to adapt. So much of religious services in Christianity became really a form of suspending the material world, suspending one sense oneself from the material world, escaping the demands of the material world into what the implied assumption is a make-belief world. A world where you can believe that there's something in the sky and the heavens that loves you unconditionally, regardless of the way you are and what you've done. And as long as you acknowledge that thing, it is eternally grateful and just simply bubbles with love over you. In Islam, like so many of the issues relating to religious practice in Islam, Islam is a religion that is entirely at peace with the pragmatic and practical affairs of the world. And Juma is at the heart of what a community, the way that a community comes together to address matters of public concern. Recently, we all woke up to the news of the United Arab Emirates signing, what well, I'm not sure what to call it, but some type of normalization accord with Israel. Now, of course, this is quite curious because although that deal has been described by the Trump administration as a peace accord, it's curious because the United Arab Emirates and Israel have never been at war. And why do you need a peace accord between two countries that have never fought a war and will never fight a war? I'm not sure. Nevertheless, and of course, the United Arab Emirates doesn't border Israel. So it's not, we don't have to worry about Israel invading the United Arab Emirates or the United Arab Emirates invading Israel. The United Arab Emirates is not even one of the border countries. The reason I mentioned this is because it underscores the extent to which this so-called peace accord is everything but. Anyway, the United Arab Emirates signs some type of agreement with Israel, a normalization accord, if you will, some type of accord by, some type of accord according to which 
United Arab Emirates and Israel would have normal political relations, exchange representatives, diplomatic representatives, and normalize their relationships, which would have been something of very little interest but for a few simple facts. One, the Trump administration touts this agreement as an example of the way forward for the entire Arab world and Israel, and indeed the entire Muslim world and Israel. The Trump administration constructs this deal as an example of the type of peace that they want in the Middle East. In fact, Jared Kushner had the goal to declare after this accord was signed that look how wonderful this is. Muslims, you can now, if you just do what the United Arab Emirates has done, you can now visit the Aqsa Mosque. That's of course, we're gonna visit the Aqsa Mosque in these periods in which Jewish settlers are not invading the Aqsa Mosque and occupying it. So I guess in the in-betweens, with all the danger that Jewish settlers pose to those who are in the Aqsa Mosque, because they often attack visitors to the Aqsa Mosque, Kushner assures us that we can visit the Aqsa Mosque. And that's, of course, if Israel grants you a visa as a Muslim in the first place, which for the vast majority of Muslims is something near impossible. And even if they grant you a visa, being an Arab going through Israel or a Muslim going through Israel, you are subject to such demeaning and humiliating treatment that only a real masochist would put themselves through that procedure. Nevertheless, Kushner stood and brought us all the good news that you Muslims, if you just do what the United Arab Emirates did, you can visit your Aqsa Mosque. Something that is condescending, degrading, demeaning, and indeed a violation of the separation clause, separation between church and state of the U.S. Constitution. It's not Kushner's business to promote or to declare under his auspices what a Muslim religious practice is going to be or ought to be. Anyway, so the Trump administration touts this as an example of the type of peace that they want between Israelis and Arabs. And since the Trump administration doesn't really distinguish between Arabs and Muslims, indeed, the type of peace that they want between Israel and Muslims, because Israel often talks as if it is at war with the entire Muslim world. 
Second, the United Arab Emirates itself claimed that they signed this accord not because they are betraying the Palestinian cause, but because they want to help the Palestinian cause. In fact, the United Arab Emirates said, well, you know, thanks to our signing this accord, Israel agreed not to annex Palestinian territories in the West Bank or to put, to suspend its annexation program. In other words, not to steal the re of what remains of Palestinian lands in the West Bank. So the United Arab Emirates itself has posed the deal not as a bilateral agreement between two nations, but as a peace accord that sets an example for the rest of the Arab world and the rest of the Muslim world. This is precisely why, right after the accord was signed, Sisi's government in Egypt was the first to endorse it and praise it and speak about how wonderful it is. Third, Israel itself is speaking about this agreement not as an agreement between Israel and another sovereign nation, but as proof positive that Arabs no longer care about Palestinians and have sold Palestinians down the drain, and that indeed the entire Muslim world doesn't care about Palestinians and does not care about the Aqsa Mosque. Netanyahu bragged that Israel has secret relations with many Muslim countries and that following the example of the United Arab Emirates, these Muslim countries will soon come out to the public in open relations with Israel and that proves that Israeli policies are correct and that Muslims do not care about the Aqsa Mosque and that Muslims do not care about Palestinians or their homeland. So you have the United States talking about this as a peace accord the United Arab Emirates claiming that they've done this for the sake of Palestinians, and Israel itself 
So don't tell me that this is simply some type of bilateral agreement between two sovereign nations that are free to do whatever they want. There is a further element I want to add here. Israeli TV is remarkably um, watching Israeli TV is remarkably eye-opening. Israeli TV never tires of talk shows where they bring guests, where the anchor, the journalist hosting the program and the, the clear majority of guests engage in what is clearly a racist discourse about Palestinian, Arab, Palestinians, Arabs, and Muslims. According to one talk show after another, in the events leading up to this accord and the events after this accord, the agreement that Israel just signed with the United Arab Emirates proves that Arabs and Muslims understand only one language, and that's the language of violence and power, that Arabs and Muslims can only be subordinated and made to submit. That in fact this proves that Israel was right not to ever negotiate seriously with Palestinians and to only teach those people, those people meaning Arabs and Muslims, the language of power and subjugation. And that in fact, Arabs are finally coming around to the realization that they have been defeated and that they must abandon the Palestinians to their fate, and that fighting for the Aqsa Mosque is a futile cause, and that surrender is the only realistic path before them. This is precisely why the ink hadn't even dried on the accord between the United Arab Emirates and Israel, the ink hasn't even dried. And Netanyahu comes out in a press conference saying the following, and this is after the foreign minister, Anwar Gergash, the foreign minister of the United Arab Emirates said, well, you know, we did, we signed this accord with Israel to save Palestinian lands in the West Bank from being annexed. This is what Netanyahu had to say. There is no change whatsoever to our plan to extend our sovereignty over Judea and Samaria. 
The fact that they call the West Bank Judea and Samaria is in itself a racist act. Because you are privileging the language of the Old Testament and the old ancient history over any historical events that followed as if the only historical period that is relevant is the historical period in which Jews ha happen to exist in this territory and everything that comes after it is just simply irrelevant. Anyway, Netanyahu says there is no change whatsoever in our plan to extend our sovereignty over Judea and Samaria in full coordination with the United States. So, the Foreign Ministry of the United Arab Emirates comes out and says, oh, we signed this agreement to save Palestinian lands from being annexed. Kushner tells us, this is the way forward for all of you people, all of you Muslims, if you want access to your Aqsa Mosque, access that will be granted by Israel as an act of kindness whenever Israel and its Jewish settlers, its fanatic Jewish settlers, would extend the kindness to us. And the ink hasn't even dried on this, and Netanyahu comes out and says, you know, nothing changed. Nothing stained. We will, we will rob the, whatever remains of this land. And the hell was Palestinians. This is precisely what you hear on Israeli TV. This is precisely what you hear on Israeli TV. Those Muslims, they, if people could just hear the way Muslims are talked about in Israeli talk shows, it is the most degrading and demeaning thing. They are always talked about as if they are children with a very limited IQ and a very limited capacity to comprehend and understand. The deal between the United Arab Emirates and Israel there is no two ways about it. It is a clear betrayal of the Aqsa Mosque and of the Palestinian people. A clear betrayal of the Aqsa Mosque and the Palestinian people. The Trump administration moves the U.S. Embassy in, in clear violation of international law and in clear contradiction to all the previous agreements and accords since 1967 moves the American Embassy to Jerusalem. And who can forget 
the comment made by American diplomats, several of them, oh, when we moved the American embassy to Jerusalem, we thought that the Arab world were erupt, but see, nothing happened. But not only that, but then United Arab Emirates comes along to effectively reward the Trump administration and the Israeli government for clearly abusing the sovereign the sovereignty of the Palestinian people and clearly abusing the history and the heritage and the sacrifices of Muslims around the world over centuries by simply annexing Jerusalem and declaring it an Israeli capital, undivided, under Israeli tutelage. There are two things to underscore. Why should all of us care? Because at the most basic level, we still have a lot of Muslim quote-unquote leaders in the United States that have a close and intimate relations with the United Arab Emirates and its government. And every Muslim imam or wannabe imam or academic that has a close association with the United Arab government has a close association with an evil thing, with a government that has consistently betrayed Palestinians and Muslims and Jerusalem. And as I said before, in fact, in the Arab world, MBZ is known as Shaitan al-Arab, or the devil of the Arabs, not in a term of endearment. It is because most Arab people know that this man doesn't give a hoot about Muslim or Arab causes or the Palestinian people or Jerusalem and in fact aligns himself consistently with what is ever whatever is against what Muslims want or what Palestinians want. This is a critical element. Because I am sick and tired of a people that do not hold their leaders accountable. If you are a Muslim in the United States and you do not hold Hamza Yusuf accountable for his close and intimate relationship with the United Arab government, then you are part of the problem. 
unless we hold our leaders ethically accountable, do you, in turn, are an unethical person. You vote all the time. You vote with your attendance. You vote with what you click on on the computer. You vote with what you give a like to. You vote with what you choose to spend money on or spend time on. You vote. And when you know that there is a government that has clearly betrayed the Aqsa Mosque and Jerusalem, Quds, leave alone betrayed an entire people, the Palestinian people, and you still don't hold your leaders accountable for their unethical and immoral conduct, then you are unethical and you are immoral. And then don't even bother with pretending to be a good Muslim because it's a lost cause from the get-go. Prayer and fasting counts, but they count for an ethical human being. If you're unethical, might as well not pray or fast. Because it doesn't make a difference. Second, mark my words. Muslims can engage in whatever rationalizations they want. Whatever intellectualisms they want. Whatever fancy, modern, couched language they wish. But if you study Islamic history, you know that the barometer of the health of the Ummah is not Mecca and Medina, but is it Quds, Jerusalem. There is no period in Islamic history where Muslims were not in control of, of Jerusalem in which Muslims were doing well. And there is no period in Islamic history in which they did control Jerusalem in which they were doing badly. So when you abandon the Aqsa Mosque, because I hear intellectualized Muslims say, well, you know, What's the problem? It's time we move on. Let Israelis enjoy Quds. We have Mecca and Medina. What's the special deal about the Aqsa Mosque? The special deal is that it is the pulse and spirit and soul of Islamic history. When you betray Al-Quds, you haven't just betrayed the Palestinian people, but you've betrayed the Islamic history, leave alone, of course, the Prophet and his Isra and Mi'raj. But the entire Ummah is forsaken. 
It, it blows my mind that all that was needed is for, in fact, the Muslim world to erupt when the U.S. moved the U.S. the embassy to Jerusalem to send a clear message what it was in fact all that was needed is for the world to see Muslims are all over serious about the Aqsa Mosque. But as long as Muslims, and when I say Muslims, I mean Muslims everywhere, as long as a country like the U.S. can move its embassy to Jerusalem, and the United Arab Emirates can sign an accord in which they completely abandon and sell out Jerusalem, and other Muslim countries continue doing business with the United Arab Emirates as if nothing has changed. And in fact, the leader of another Muslim country, Egypt, praises MBZ for selling out Al-Aqsa and stay in power. No revolution against the president of Egypt for being a traitor in turn. No, no one is running to the streets overthrowing a tyrant. The streets are not erupting. In fact, you can't even get Muslims in the United States to demonstrate in front of an Israeli embassy. What this means is that we deserve what we get. Don't blame Allah when you sit in your dua and say, Allah, please, my mother, my father, my brother, my sister, my husband, my wife are in trouble. They've been detained at the border. Please, Allah, create an ease for them. Please give them a way out. Don't complain when Allah closes the door on your prayers. Because you betrayed Allah first by betraying Al-Quds and by betraying ethics and morality. You've chosen to sit idly by watching injustice and racism and Islamophobia and bigotry take over the world. And what did you choose to do? You chose to pay attention to your career, to make money, to become accomplished, to be proud of yourself. You didn't even bother disrupting your weekend to go join a demonstration. So don't complain when Allah doesn't help you, doesn't help your family, doesn't help your loved ones, when Allah simply closes the door to your pleas and to your prayers. Is it that serious? Yes, it's that serious. We are often focused on what Allah does with us. 
But how often are we focused as to what we do with Allah? Do we really hold our end of the bargain? Don't forget that the very fact that this agreement was signed now, today, is in itself a slap to the entire Muslim world. Why? Why did the Trump administration choose to have the Israelis and the Emiratis sign this accord now? Is it because the Trump administration worries about the best interests of the Emiratis? No. Is it because they worry about the best interests of the Israelis? Well, they already serve the best interests of the Israelis all the time. They don't need to sponsor a political accord to serve the interests of the Israelis. It is simply because Trump is trailing in the polls and is desperate for a political victory. And exactly like with the Camp David Accords, when President Tar Carter told Sadat, if you like me, you will not leave Camp David without signing the agreement with Israel. Why? Because it's good for Egypt? Because it's good for peace? Because it's No, because I need this to be re-elected. Read the, di the, the, the diaries of Camp David Accord. When the Egyptian diplomats told presidents that, this is a degrading and demeaning peace treaty. We don't get Egyptian sovereignty over Sina. In fact, Israel remains in control over a great deal of the affairs of Sina. You can't sign this. President Carter asked President Sadat to have the Egyptian diplomats step outside the room for a private conversation. Years later, President Carter, in his diaries, admitted that he told Sadat, listen, friend, if you don't sign this these accords with Israel, I, Carter, will not be re-elected. So, for the sake of President Carter being elected to a second term, the fate of nations can be played with and manipulated as you wish. Similarly, simply because Trump wants to claim some political victory and positions himself as a peacekeeper after he failed to negotiate a deal with North Korea and he failed to negotiate a deal with Iran. So he goes to the people he's accustomed to kicking around. And these are the Arabs. Sign here, yes sir. Can you imagine the Aqsa Mosque and Quds and the fate of the Palestinian people and even the future of Israelis themselves being determined on the basis of such 
flimsy wills, just such as Trump wanting a second term so he can run the rest of the country to the ground. Some people have written me and said, it is not just the Arab world. It is true. Islam is not an Arab religion, clearly. But the problem of Jerusalem and the Aqsa is that the heart and soul and core of the entire Muslim world. I wish it was the, fate, the case that the Indonesians and Malaysians and the Turks and the Senegalese played a much more serious role as to what would become of Al-Quds. But the reality of the matter is that in the same way people left Al-Hijaz to a literally unknown family, the Al-Saud, they left the entire fate of Al-Hijaz to this family that was plucked from the desert that no one knows anything about. The Al Saud. People abandoned the entire cause of Al Aqsa and Al Quds to a few Arab countries that are still living in the throes of colonialism. I would be quite remiss if I didn't also mention something at the same time that I heard so many Muslim pundits go on and on about the Hagia Sophia mosque or what used to be a church and then was turned to a mosque and then turned to a museum and then turned to a mosque and Turkey, at the same time that this was going on, I didn't hear a peep from the same Muslim pundits about the Babri Mosque that was destroyed in the 16th century, that was built in the 16th century and destroyed in 1992 in India. It was destroyed in 1992, a mosque that was built by the Emperor Babur, the Muslim Emperor of India, and torn down by Indian extremist Hindu fanatics in 1992, at the same time that the entire controversy about the Hagia Sophia mosque was going, Hagia Sophia whatever church, museum, mosque, was going on, 
there was a case pending before the Indian Supreme Court about whether after the Babri Mosque was torn down, Hindus can build a Hindu temple on that site. Not surprisingly, Muslims wanted to rebuild the mosque that was torn down by Indian extremists. And they filed a lawsuit in India to be granted the right to rebuild the mosque that was torn down by Indian extremists. Well, the decision of the Indian Supreme Court came down around the same time that the whole controversy with Turkey and its mosque was going on. And the Indian Supreme Court decided that Muslims cannot rebuild their mosque on that location. And not only that, that the Indian government has the right to build a Hindu temple over the location of the Babri Mosque. And in fact, the fanatic Hindu nationalist, Modi, already drew up the plans and the finances to build a Hindu, a Hindu temple over the location of the historic mosque that was destroyed by Indian extremists. The same Muslim pundits and just so you know how, how so many, you know, I just get tired of so many Muslim youth acting like they're independent thinkers and they're free thinkers. And they don't realize the extent, their entire intellectual epistemology, their entire consciousness, their entire agenda is created by social media. Social media tells them the topic to talk about is Hagia Sophia in, in, in Turkey, and they all do that, like parrots. Social media doesn't put on the radar Indian fanaticism and the persecution of Muslims in India, and it's not on the radar. And yet they all go around acting like they're very cool, and they're such independent thinkers. They're parrots. In a remarkable repetition of Jewish mythology about the Aqsa Mosque, Indian Hindu nationalists decided that the god Ram was born of all locations, was born right where the Babri Mosque was built. Is there historical evidence that the Aqsa Mosque was built on the site of the Israeli first and second temple? The evidence is non-existent. Is there evidence that the Babri Mosque was built on the site where the god Ram was born? The evidence is non-existent. Nevertheless, not an academic would dare say what I just said now. Academics would run for cover 
before saying there's no evidence that the, the location of the of the first and second temple where, where the Aqsa Mosque is. There's simply no evidence. And there's no evidence that the God Ram was born where the Babri Mosque is. Nevertheless, Hindu nationalists invented the same mythology of Zionist nationalists and said, we are going to destroy this mosque because this is the spot where Ram was born, the God Ram was born, and we need a Hindu temple where that mosque stands. And the Indian government allowed that mosque to be torn down. A thousand Muslim Indians lost their lives trying to defend the mosque. And then they cordoned off that location and didn't allow Muslims to rebuild their mosque. And finally, the Indian Supreme Court came down with a shameful decision saying Muslim to Muslims, tough luck, we're going to build the Hindu temple and you can go build at your own expense, mind you, another mosque in some other location, 20, 30 kilometers, but not where the historic, the principle doesn't matter. You Muslims don't matter. You don't count. Don't forget that this is the same Prime Minister Modi who at the time persecuting Kashmiri Muslims, persecuting the 200 million Muslims of India, was honored by Mohammed bin Zayed of the Emirati government. Don't forget that the same people that sold and betrayed the Palestinians and Jerusalem have also betrayed the Muslims of India. Leave alone, leave alone the Muslims of China and the Rohingyas. And, and again, I come down to the crux of the matter. You have Muslim leaders that have a close and intimate and open relationship with that same government that has betrayed the Palestinians and betrayed Jerusalem and betrayed Indian Muslims. And those Muslim leaders are celebrated and honored by you. By you. And that is why, my dear brothers and sisters, you are a cursed people. That is why we are a cursed people. بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والحمد لله رب العالمين وسبحان الله العلي العظيم والله أكبر على كل من طغى وتجبر ونصلي ونسلم ونبارك على محمد النبي الأمين المرسل رحمة للعالمين
خاتم الأنبياء والرسل أجمعين Recently, I'm not quite sure why, but Allah has willed that I run into people or situations where some Muslims seem to pose the question of why Allah doesn't answer their dua on their timeline, not Allah's timeline. Well, already, theologically, if Allah answers the dua of any of us because of what we've done to Islam, it would be an act of pure grace. And it, frankly, and simply an extremely kind gift, not something that we, in fact, deserve. Maybe if we would have done our duty towards protecting fellow Muslims and protecting the Hijaz and protecting Al-Aqsa, maybe we would have the right to look at whether God answers our prayers. But I have a different point to make. These various conversations or reminded me of the story of Salaba in Islamic history. The story of Salaba is about answered prayers, materialism, human ego, and how finicky human beings are when they want something, they implore God ever so sincerely. And they suddenly become far more conscientious about their ibadah. their worship. And when God answers their prayers, they very quickly experience and change in mood and attitude. So Salaba was a man who converted to Islam at the time of the Prophet And he was a man of modest means. And also after his conversion, he was a regular attendee at the mosque in Medina, a regular worshiper. In other words, a good Muslim used to memorize the Quran but Thalaba had one dream. He dreamt of being 
a big merchant, livestock merchant. He wanted to have a cattle farm that is very productive and wanted to sell cattle and become, in our language, a mover and shaker in the world of business. And Thalaba would consistently pray to Allah that Allah would answer his prayers and say, Allah, only if I was a man of means, only if you, Allah, would give me, I would be able to do so much more for Muslims. I would be able to support Muslim armies. I would be able to take care of the Muslim poor. I would do so much for Islam. After long sessions of dua, Thalaba finally goes to the Prophet and says, Prophet, Allah knows my intentions. I intend to do a lot of good for Islam and for the poor and for the armies of Islam. I intend to do a lot of good to pray to Allah to make me wealthy. The Prophet said, Thalaba, a little that you are truly grateful for is much better than a lot that you are ungrateful with. Thalaba says, Prophet of Allah, trust me. If Allah would give me, you would see what I would do. Finally, the Prophet ﷺ prayed, Allahumma arzuq Thalaba. Allah, make Thalaba wealthy. No time passed before suddenly Thalaba's business picks up and week after week, Thalaba's livestock he has a series of business deals that go wildly well and his livestock grows. The Prophet started noticing that Thalaba is late to Juma. He didn't say anything. Thalaba would arrive, but he'd always now arrive late. He's no longer among the first comers to Juma who's waiting there for the Prophet to arrive, but he didn't say anything. Then months pass and the Prophet notices that Thalaba is missing Jummah. So the Prophet tells his companions, Aina Thalaba? Li Thalaba? Where is Thalaba? Woe to Thalaba. That means the Prophet is asking about him and now he's worried. The companions tell the Prophet that indeed Thalaba is missing Jum'ah because he's busy now as a big merchant and a wheeler and dealer. He can't always attend Jum'ah and in fact they heard rumors that he built a little prayer area next to where he lives so he can just pray there and save time. More time passes, 
the Prophet ﷺ deputizes the tax collector. The tax collector is the one that goes around collecting from merchants around Medina the kharaj that is due and the zakat that is due as well as the sadaqat that merchants pay. So they go to Salaba. And Salaba says, how much do you want? They tell him. He says, but wait, the amount you're asking for is greater than the jizya that I would have paid if I wasn't Muslim. Logic, rationalization. The tax assessed is now higher than what non-Muslims pay as a jizya. The tax collector tells Salaba, so what? This is what you owe. This is what you owe the poor. This is what you owe the state pay. Salaba says, give me some time. Some time for what? Well, I need to think and arrange my matters. The, ma the tax collector goes back to the Prophet ﷺ and says, Salaba complained that this is as much as, as the jizya or more than the jizya and hasn't paid. The Prophet ﷺ simply says, Wailun li Thalaba. Woe to Thalaba. Doesn't add anything else. The tax collector goes back to Thalaba. This time Thalaba says, Listen, I'm not paying. What does the Islamic State do for me anyway? I'm the one, through hard work, who made this business grow. I'm the one who spent long hours, nights and day working hard to nurture my business and my investments. And now you want a tax? What for? What do you do for me? And he refuses to pay. Because the Prophet ﷺ was alive at the time, not too much time passes before the Prophet receives revelation. What has become a very famous ayah. وَمِنْهُمْ مَنْ عَاهَدَ اللَّهِ لَإِنْ آتَانَا مِنْ فَضْلِهِ لَنَّصَدَّقَنَّ وَلَنَكُونَنَّ مِنَ الصَّالَحِينَ فَلَمَّا أَتَاهُمْ مِنْ فَضْلِهِ بَخْلُوا بِهِ وَتَوَلَّوْا وَهُمْ مُعْرِضُونَ فَأَقَبَهُمْ نِفَاقًا فِي قُلُوبِهِمْ إِلَى يَوْمَ إِلَى يَوْمِ يَلْقُونَ يَلْقُونَهُ بِمَا أَخْلَفُوا اللَّهَ وَمَا وَعَدُوهُ وَبِمَا كَانُوا يُكَذِّبُونَ Uh, the Quranic revelation says, and there are those who promised Allah that if you give us bounties, we will be sincere and generous. And when Allah gave them, they went back on all the promises. Those are truly the hypocrites. And Allah is angry at them until the hereafter. It eventually reaches Thalaba's ears that 
Muslims are saying there is a new ayah and that this ayah is about Thalaba. Thalaba freaks out. He collects the money that the taxpayer asked for and goes to the Prophet in Medina and says, Prophet, okay, I, I heard that this there is revelation about me. Here is the money. The Prophet refuses to take it. And says, Thalaba, now that revelation has come, I can no longer take your money. Go ask Allah for forgiveness. Perhaps Allah will forgive you. But as far as I'm concerned, we will not take from you a jizya and we will not take you from you a khiraj or zakah or sadaqah. Salama ends up being an outcast and ends up actually dying a very sad, sad death. He eventually loses it all. And as an outcast, he also becomes very ill and dies with his wife next to him, but his children were not very caring or loyal children either. Anyway, think about this. At the time of the Prophet Thalaba became an outcast because of what for Muslims nowadays would strike them as a very logical point of view. Maybe it's something we should discuss. Maybe it's something we should spend a couple of hours tweeting about or Instagramming about or whatever Muslims do these days. Um, you know, is the Salaqah and Zakah like Jizya? Are they the same? Are they different? Well, how do you know? Just intellectual adolescence, intellectual adolescence. But if Thalaba lived our days, in our days, instead of becoming an outcast in the Muslim community, he would have an army of Muslims kissing his behind. So he can, because he's rich and he's wealthy and he's a mover and shaker. This is how morality is constructed in society and betrayed in society. When immoral people find that there are no consequences to their immorality, it becomes a shaitani project. The entire social structure becomes a shaitani project and you become a participant in a shaitani enterprise whether you want it or you don't. But when unethical behavior is treated as such, the impact of society on society becomes undeniable. And morality is rewarded and immorality is ostracized. <laughs> Allahumma arhamna, 
اللهم اغفر لنا اللهم يسر لنا أمرنا يا علي عظيم واسكننا فسيح جناتك وقنا عذاب النار يا الله Allah forgive our sins grant us the straight path the path of guidance the path of light grant us your mercy and your love and your kindness grant us beauty in our life wherever we go وصلى الله على محمد وعلى اله واصحابه ومن تبعوا باحسان الى يوم الدين واقم الصلاه